What wonderful songs that we have sung. We needed those words, didn't we, this morning? Let's turn to the Lord in His Word now and hear from Him. You may be seated. Take your Bibles, copy of the Scriptures. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, our text this morning will be verses 57 through 62. Remember as you turn to Luke chapter 9 that Jesus in Luke chapter 9 is training his disciples. He's been teaching his 12 disciples and really unpacking discipleship in some very profound passages. And I would say some of the most challenging passages in all of Scripture about the nature of true Christianity and true discipleship. In fact, we read this morning one of those challenging passages in our Scripture reading. And as we come to this challenging passage on discipleship in Luke chapter 9, at the end of Luke chapter 9, I really see this passage in 57 through 62 as a, a companion passage to the, the passage about discipleship that uh, Brian read this morning in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. So when Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, and He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I see our passage this morning in verses 57 through 62 to be answering that question, what does it look like to come after Christ and deny yourself and to take up your cross daily and follow him. To be really answering the question as to what that looks like. I see these con passages connected together in that way. And it all makes sense. We saw even last week as Jesus and his disciples began this Jerusalem journey, right? Where he set his face like flint to head south to Jerusalem. We, we learned that discipleship will take resolve. We learned that our following of Christ will be met with resistance and even rejection. And that this discipleship is all about the rescue of sinners. And, and we're going to learn and it's gonna, there's going to be rebuke along the way. We learned all of those things last week. But I think our passage here is meant to, to tie all four of those aspects of discipleship together, to bring all of those principles together, how would you summarize those four R's into one main point? I think that was what Luke is doing. He's summarizing this overall theme, this overall teaching of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way, what it means to be a Christian. He's getting at the very heart of it. In, the, in our passage today. So let's see if you can discover that, that main principle as we read. You can follow along as we read our Scripture this morning. 
for the exposition. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Discipleship is following Jesus. And following Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus must have first place in everything. Let us pray. Lord, we need your help this morning. These are difficult words. These are direct and clear words. Holy Spirit, drive them deeply into our hearts this morning. If there are those who are poised on the edge of decision as to whether follow Jesus or not, I pray that they would that there would be some clarity here. They would count the cost. And for us as followers of Christ, we're such a mixed bag. We're hurting in so many ways, and we need to hear this word again today, Holy Spirit. Come minister to us through the living and enduring word of God and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I don't remember if it was a volleyball jersey, warm-up jersey, or a basketball uh, warm-up that I saw. I don't know if it was my kids' teams or another team. But I remember one year, the warm-up simply said on the front two words, all in, all in. If you're going to be a successful team player, you've got to be all in. It's interesting to me that in modern Christianity, and when you consider uh, typical evangelistic practice, it's, it's quite acceptable to have a little bit of head knowledge about Jesus and the gospel, perhaps, and, and say that you're a Christian then, and maybe walk the aisle or pray a prayer or sign a card 
nothing any particular wrong with praying a prayer to God. But in my 30 years of being a believer, give or take, I can't remember, um, what you tend to see is sometimes that happening, and then you look at their, their life a couple, de- a couple days later, a couple of weeks later, a couple of years later, and you can't really tell, frankly, I was being honest, you can't really tell the difference between the way they act and the way the world acts, or the way they speak and the way the world speaks, or what they love and what the world loves. And it's so, it's so common sense that <clears throat> I've, a good coach would want a good warm-up with all-in on the front. It's common sense for a high school basketball team. You want to win the national championship. If you want to win the state championship, you've got to be all-in. We're like, yeah, that makes sense. But then we come to the, the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, who has a plan and a purpose for this universe and this world and our lives to redeem a people from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, and every tongue. And he's got this plan, and he's got this purpose, he's got this strategy, he's got the team. And there's this cosmic battle, this war between light and darkness. It just makes sense if this is even real, and there's a real God and a real Christianity in a real Jesus Christ, then it makes sense that if you're going to be on His team, if you're going to be traveling with Him, you've got to be all in. It just makes sense. Christianity isn't a hobby. Christianity isn't a second job. If we're following Jesus today, if we're resolved to go with Him and there's going to be resistance and we've set our face like flint to follow Him on this suffering before glory path, on our path, our race course, if we're following Him and if we're learning from Him, then we're not halfway in. True Christians are all in. And it doesn't mean that we're sinless. It doesn't mean that we're not a mixed bag. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle, but we love Him, and we're fully committed to Him, not only as Savior from our sins, but we're committed to Him as Lord of our lives. We are all in. And if I just hope, if you're not convinced that that is the message of Christianity, I hope you will be by the end of this message from Luke chapter 9. For in our passage today, Jesus has three interactions, three short conversations with three would-be disciples. Those that are, po- that are really seeming, they, they want to follow Christ. They're ready to walk that aisle. They're ready to pray that prayer. And Jesus is trying to be crystal clear. He's, he, he's trying to be clear what it really means to be 
a believer, a, a disciple, a follower of Christ. And he wants the people in this passage and he wants us today to count that cost and to know that we must be all in. And so there's three interactions with these would-be followers of Jesus that shows us that followers of Jesus, Jesus must have first place in everything. He must have first place in everything. So let's look at that first interaction. Number one, we, he must have first place over our pleasures. First place over our pleasures. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, we don't know what his, his or her name was, <clears throat> I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds great, doesn't it? Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Very commendable, very commendable. And look at what Jesus says in his response, verse 58, and Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's Jesus' response to this would-be follower of Christ. Even the animals have a place to live. They have a place they can call home. But not the Son of Man. He says he has nowhere to lay his head. He's uncomfortable. He's disadvantaged. He's homeless. The glorious Son of Man. The glorious Son of Man who will establish His kingdom on this earth. King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Lord of glory has nowhere to lay His head. From the very beginning, that was the case, wasn't it? There was no room for him in the inn. Starts his ministry, goes to his hometown of Nazareth. How'd that go? I mean, it's shocking. His own family and friends and acquaintances from from day one, they marched him off to the edge of a cliff and wanted to throw him off. That's his hometown. He goes to the region of Gadara, a man named Legion, filled with many demons. And he performs this miracle, and this guy is seated at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. It's incredible. And they begged him to leave their district. Get out. Go back. In our last passage, Jesus is heading south of Jerusalem. He sends messengers ahead, probably to prepare a place to lay his head. Maybe some provisions, right? He's traveling to Samaria, sends messengers ahead. The Samaritans refuse lodging. You cannot stay. 
nowhere to lay his head. At the very end, as he reaches Jerusalem to secure our exodus, to accomplish our redemption for 33 years, earth had completely rejected him. And then, hanging naked upon the cross of Calvary, being rejected even more on the cross, his father turned his back on him. And he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No. Are you and I greater than our master? What exactly have we signed up for? A life of ease? A life of security and financial freedom? A life of pleasure and comfort? And the answer is no from this passage. If we're going to follow Christ, it will mean suffering in this world. There'll be self-denial. There'll be sacrifice and service for others. And Jesus is he's speaking so starkly here. He, he's trying to be clear. He's trying to help us. You may lose everything in this world, including, including your own life, if you choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You may lose your job for not caving in to the gender confusion of our day. You may lose, we may lose this church building and tax-exempt status for preaching marriage between one man and one woman. We will be ridiculed for declaring to anyone, frankly, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Him. The Christian life following Christ will be one of suffering and sacrifice. I mean, we know the hardship of being a follower of Christ. It's difficult to say no to a job promotion in order to raise your family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, if that's what it takes. We know the battle and the hardship of of fighting against lust. Men and women, with the media of our day, when it assaults you minute by minute, it is suffering and hardship to strive against sin. And true believers recognize that. There's a hardship of, of... of the culture that, that kills babies in our state up until the ninth month and thinks it's okay. I mean, just think of your Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Teens, kids, is it a pleasurable experience to honor your parents when they're just not being honorable in the way they're talking to you? How hard is it 20-somethings to refuse to laugh at those jokes and to speak in a way that pleases the Lord in the workplace and in this world when you're finally just trying to get some traction, trying to get ahead for a change. And the things that I've listed are just things that we might experience here in this plush culture. 
What does it cost for the church to gather in Vienna? All 30 of you among millions. What does it cost our brothers and sisters in Iran and Nigeria and Egypt when people are losing everything and losing their own lives for the sake of the Son of Man? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ will take some clarity on this point. Right up front, these people are deciding whether they're in or not. Right up front, some clarity. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, count the cost. It's not an easy decision. Don't be naive. And, Christian, this is true for us every day of this passage. To be a disciple of Jesus is going to take endurance. You must be all in. He's drawing a line in the sand for us even. Jesus must have first place over everything. He must have first place over our pleasures, the things that come from this world. There's a feel here. I think Paul and Peter pick up on Christ's words. I know they do. That if you're a Christian, you're all in. That means you're an alien and a stranger and a wanderer without a legitimate place spiritually to lay your head in this world. We're passing through a God-forsaken land. This place is not our home. We are wanderers. We are on the move. And there is, in a real sense, no place, comfortable place to lay our head. That is what Jesus is saying to the first would-be follower. But he moves on to a second interaction and he moves on, and, and in this interaction, he, Jesus is saying we must, he must have first place over our priorities. First place over our priorities. Verse 59, this time Jesus is on, he's inviting. So, so other people are talking to Jesus in the first, two, first and last interaction. They're bringing up following, and now Jesus says, he invites. Hey, he says, He said to another, verse 59, follow me. That's what he's calling us. If you want to be a Christian, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. But he said, in contrast, but he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, this was tough. I I studied this a long time trying to figure this passage out. Jesus says, follow, follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. You follow Christ. The man says, and I think it's a key word here, first. Twice it's mentioned in our section. First. First. The man said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, you know, if my dad dies, I, you know, I want to bury him. It's just the honorable thing to do, even in the Old Covenant. It seems like a very reasonable request, especially in that culture. It seems even a little bit over the top. Well, many people had tried to explain that, this passage, because how those words land. And there's a number of ways of explaining this. 
In that culture, there was a, a year-long period from when the body was first buried, and, and then a year later, the bones then were brought up, and the deceased were, uh, bones were placed in an ossuary box after a year, and after that year, um, after that process, then the inheritance would come. The inheritance. Or perhaps <clears throat> this father in this passage is in the process of dying. He's near his deathbed and there's the process of burial. I've got to take care of those things. Then I will follow you. The point is clear here. If you're going to follow Jesus, he must have first place over our priorities. Even the most culturally sensitive priorities in our life do not hold first place in our heart. We like to say it, don't we? Come on, what's our priorities? We're having a little discipleship meeting with someone over coffee. That's what are our priorities. Everyone who's like wants to show good hand, right? Who's first? Right, right? That's how it always goes in our conversations. Yeah, God is first. And then you want to show how good a husband you are, so you, you say, but my wife is second, right? That's for husbands, amen? Right? We, we would be careful not to. And then three, our kids, right? And I won't go into the other priorities after that. I'll get in trouble if I go further than that. We like to say those things, but what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness? And all these things will be added to us that we need as well. I mean, what Jesus is asking for is a little over the top, it would seem. But clearly what He's doing here, that there's something that we're missing if if, if the priority and pleasure of following Jesus and being one of His is just, isn't so like otherworldly in its distance as far as even the most culturally sensitive things that we might engage in. That fundamentally, it is, the gap is so eternal between Jesus and anything else that we'd be like, I'm not quite sure what it means, but of course, Jesus is first. There's such an intense urgency to follow Jesus today and right now with no more excuses, with no more good things that have gotten in your way to be all in. That is at the very heart of what He's doing here. However you take the bearing of the Father. Because here Jesus' response is verse 60. Take a look at it. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now listen to this. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. 
Now, Jesus is speaking, I think, in a way here. Look, you've got the world is full of dead men and women walking. Allow, those, allow the spiritually dead to bury their own dead. Or, and, and I think the main point is just, it'll take care of itself. Let those things go. As one has said, don't be excessively preoccupied with less important concerns. John MacArthur is right. Let the world take care of the mundane things. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. I don't know all the details, but I'll tell you one thing about Christianity. Jesus must have first place over our priorities. I mean, think about the battle for priorities in our life. The battle for priorities in our life is all about decision-making. Decision-making in many ways is, the, is at the tip of the spear in Christianity. <laughs> oh, do we sell our house or do we stay? Do we keep the car or do we not? Should the kids play summer baseball or not? What career do I pursue? Do I watch this TV show or not? Where do I go to college? And on and on the decisions go. But I think it's important to kind of take a passage like this and Jesus is trying to say, hey, let me help you through all of this. Your food is to do the will of the Father. Your your priority is to be next to me and to be near to me. Your priority is, remember, you're part of the team. And the team mission is to win. And, the win, and, and it's God's mission. And it's to take a people from every tribe, every nation, every kindred, and every tongue that they might pass from death to life through the preaching of the Word of God and they might be gathered around the throne to worship Christ on the new heavens of the new earth forever and ever. And it, that's our purpose in this world. And this passage impacts decision-making. It helps us with our priorities. What is our purpose in this world? Well, it's the same purpose as the Lord Christ. Look at verse 30. To go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Our purpose, you're trying to do a vision. I like to do a family vision. We have a, I saw it on the desk. A 10-point, a top 10 family vision for our family for our own lives. What's our purpose? Well, to bring our husband with us to heaven, bring our wife with us, to bring our kids, to bring our neighbors with us. Jesus tells us if you're a follower of Christ, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. This is the pinnacle kingdom priority salt and light in this world not just by our actions commending and adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ but strategizing and thinking about opportunities to proclaim and to open up our mouths about the person and work of Jesus Christ I like to think of it this way look your job is not the point this church is not the point and it's programs 
Every person, Jesus is saying, that we're interacting with on this road through Samaria and to the end, every single thing is an opportunity to help that person take one step closer to the kingdom by who we are, by what we say, a word about Christ. In fact, this very unique Greek word for proclaiming is very strange, and the best Greek lexicon says this means to spread far and wide kingdom of God. This, is, this should be the personal vision for your life as a believer. Your family vision is built around this word of proclaiming the kingdom through life and through our lips. The mission of the church as we think about what to do and not to do is built around this word. I just wish we knew how important it it really was in the context of this passage to have a positive statement of what our vision is here. Proclaiming the kingdom is so important. It makes the priority of bearing your dead father seem like a non-priority in comparison. Even when a, in that culture, and ours is a little different, in that culture it was even more shocking if it's possible. The burial was considered a duty, even a part of honoring your parents. It was a filial obligation. And in that culture, a decent burial took precedent almost everything else. And even the whole process was a year long. Understand that pales in comparison to the priority of proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know, so Jesus is saying you need to be all in to be a follower of Christ. It's not like, as I said, of having a part-time job. It's not like a -a 10-hour-a-week adjunct position being a disciple. But I got my other life, but I got the side job of Jesus. If you're on the edge of decision of whether you're going to follow Christ, we often... You just think, I'm going to delay. I've got some excuses. We've got to put aside these common excuses. And these priorities seem really good. Really good. Bear your father. Come on. They seem really good. But Jesus is saying, if you're on that edge of decision... Put aside if you need to. Put aside your career pursuits if it's keeping you from Jesus Christ. Put aside your pursuit of popularity with your friends if it's keeping you from Jesus Christ. Put aside your excuses. How about this one? Put aside your theological excuses for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm not one of the elect. Put aside All of those things, I remember being in my early 20s. Yes, I still remember it. Married to Jody. I remember, I said to my wife, can't go to church. I'm too busy pursuing my doctorate. The load is tremendous. Until that day, three weeks before my board exam, when I should have been doing only studying, 72 hours a day at that point. 
I ended up being at Twin Cities Bible Church hearing a gospel sermon expository in the book of Galatians, and the Lord dropped the scales that week. Remember that? Dropped the scales. Four weeks until my biggest exam of my life. And something switched. I just wanted to be at that church. I wanted to hear the word. It's like Jesus called me. Come, follow me. And the scales dropped down. And you couldn't keep me away. This is what happens when Jesus opens up hearts. And yet, how easy it is for us as believers to get re-bogged down and to lose our first love. Jesus must have first place over our pleasures. And Jesus must have first place over our priorities. And third, if we're going to be a follower of Christ Jesus, in this third interaction, He must have first place over our past. First place over our past. Verse 61. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Now he's getting nasty. I mean, you thought the last one was bad. I will follow you, Lord. I mean, I would love someone to say that, right, as I'm witnessing to them. Jesus' answer is, he says, but first permit, first, first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So, they seem very interested. They bring it up to follow Jesus. They're interested in following Jesus, but first permit me to say goodbye. Now, again, I don't think Jesus is saying we shouldn't attend memorials and funerals. He's not asking us to ignore our family. He's making his point. He's showing his value. It's infinitely greater than all all other things. And of course, he has the He's poised to understand where people are at and to know their hearts and kind of put, put his finger on what's keeping them from him in his unique opportunities. What will keep us from following Jesus? That's the key question here. What's keeping us? Christian, what's keeping you from running your race that is set before you? Is it worldly pleasure? Is it earthly priorities? Is it things in our past that capture our heart and affections. I think there's an allusion that's clear to me back to 1 Kings chapter 19 in this passage when Elijah, the prophet Elijah, calls Elisha to follow him in prophetic ministry. It's very interesting. If you want to turn there, it's on page 375 and if you have a Bible from the back in 1 Kings 19. I'll go quickly through this. This is the call of Elisha to follow Elijah. Clearly a reference. It's in the mind of Luke and Jesus here. And verse 19 of 1 Kings chapter 19. So he departed from there, Elijah did, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him. And he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. Which was the way of Elijah calling Elisha into full-time ministry. Verse 20. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please, let me kiss my father and my mother. Then I will follow you. 
It's interesting. <laughs> and he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him, and he took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen. The implements of the oxen are like the yoke and everything that went with the farming um, with the oxen, all that was made out of wood. They burned that. He burned the implements of the oxen. He gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. What is Luke doing with this use of the Old Testament and the New here? It's incredible. Listen carefully. It's shocking that Elisha gets to go back and kiss his mommy and daddy, but this man in this passage doesn't. And I think there's a message there. Elijah, Jesus, infinite. If you, any sort of earthly prophet and their calls and their ministry, infinite difference between the call of Christ and that. I think there's something there in that message as well. But I think we misread the passage in 1 Kings as well. Listen very carefully. If you're there, for us to follow Jesus is the ultimate privilege and joy to walk with Him, to love Him, to follow after Him. And Elisha, don't make no mistake about it, when he goes back to smooch his mom and dad, it's a symbol of him being all in in that culture. Because Elisha had made up his mind. He had decided to follow Elijah. We've decided to follow the greater Elijah. But he decided to follow Elijah. And if you look at the details, when Elisha goes home, he takes the 12 oxen that he's plowing with in his little small business, and he slaughters them and he eats them, and he cooks them over a fire, and he uses the very implements of, of what he used in his small business of plowing, he burns those up to burn the oxen. It's symbolic. He's telling his family, I'm all in, when he destroys his past business, when he, when he cooks the oxen. So when he goes back, he's saying to his family, he seals the deal the past was gone. His old way of life is gone. He's going to follow Elijah now. It's a clean and decisive break. And this is why he's using this Old Testament passage to follow Jesus. It's a clean and decisive break. This is what Jesus is calling for. And I think it's ironic that Elisha is following Elijah and he stops plowing with the twelve. And in our passage, the disciple starts plowing, starts plowing, with the twelve apostles plowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I geek out over this stuff. But back to our passage in Luke. Jesus said to him, here's Jesus' response, and he purposely blings up the plowing because he's alluding back to this passage. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus here is actually quoting a common proverb of the day that dated back to 800 years before he came on the scene. That's a quote from a common proverb. And we don't get it because we're not farmers, at least most of us aren't. If you work in a farming culture, now look up here, if you've got an oxen in front of you, are you with me? Look up here. 
an oxen in front of me, you got your implements attached to the oxen, and you, I mean, you got to have, you got to push that down, you got to hold both ends, and you're plowing, and you got to dig it in, and you got your eye on the finish line, on the row that you're plowing, as you're planting and scattering seed that grows into fruit. And you're digging in, and you got the oxen, and you're looking at the finish line, and you're, you, you're so focused. You're not divided. You're going straight forward, trying to plow a straight line that you might have a good crop. You see the picture? How can you do this? How can you push down and then, and then look back? You lose your pressure. You, you, your, your row is crooked. Your, your oxen is pushed, and it goes out of line. You cannot do it. You cannot turn back. It's the picture. It's a picture of total dedication, of total focus. The call is to follow Christ, to plow with Him. And that takes precedence over looking back to your past. When your race is set before you, all of the stuff in the past, the people, the plans, the pleasures, the stuff back there, Jesus takes precedence over where we've been in the past. The things that we have loved in the past. We now love Jesus more. It's not just a catchy evangelical phrase. It's real. We love Him more. The relationships that were primary and preeminent to us in the past, although we still hold them and love many of them, right? They're our family. But we love Jesus more. The activities that we pursued in the past. It's different now. We're moving forward with Jesus. We're all in. We can't run our marathon backwards. The old is gone. The new has come. We've left the city of destruction like pilgrim of old. And we don't look back. May we not be like Lot's wife who looked back to Sodom. May we remember Lot's wife. So there's a focus here. There's a loyalty here. There's an undivided heart that's characteristic of farming and and a characteristic of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what true Christianity is. It is. And it reminds me of that old campfire song. It does. Come on. It's good. We got our theology straight. You can still sing it. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. So you're going to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus wants to be clear. He doesn't want us to be naive if you're on the edge of decision. He wants to remind us as well. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus has first place over our pleasures, first place over our priorities, and first place over our past. We are all in. So I want to ask you a simple question about these three interactions that Jesus has with real people. They're trying to decide if they're going to follow Jesus. How did the three interactions end? What happened? 
How do they respond? Answer, we don't know. We don't know. So Luke leaves it open for us. I'll ask you this morning. How will it end for you? Give Jesus the answer. How, you, how will you respond to Jesus when he comes to you, looks you in the eye, and says, follow me. Follow me. Believer, we have a new heart. We have the Holy Spirit. We have new affections. We have a brand new direction. We Certainly not perfect, but the things we used to love, we hate, and the things we used to hate, we love. It's, it's real. And there's a call in this passage for believers. This passage is for believers. There's a call to hold fast our confession. I get it. I know it. I feel it. We are a mixed bag. We have the remainders of indwelling sin. There is a pull. It doesn't go away. In fact, it gets intense, the battle. There's a pull from the pleasures of this world. There's a pull from the priorities of this life. There's a pressure from our past, past activities, past loves, past relationships. Right? But brothers and sisters, listen, we are all in. We are. We're all in. So let's go. We're still running. And that brings us to our passage. You want to turn there. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 12. This is our verse we're memorizing. And I want you to hear these words in Hebrews chapter 12 in light of what Jesus has taught. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Where he's at? Where is he at? He's at the finish line, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Oh, brothers and sisters, hear me for a second. We are on some people. Look, you're on the race course. It's not helpful to just constantly question your salvation 24-7. Am I on the race course? Am I not on the race course? Am I on the race course? It's a stumbling block. Put your trust in Christ and run. But look at him. He's there. We're plowing the seed of the gospel. 
Don't look back. Don't run your race looking back to your past. Don't run your race looking at the world. We're running through the muck, looking at the world, going to the right, going to the left. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Be like Moses. By faith, Moses, we have a great cloud of witnesses. Here's one, Moses. We're going to go back, we're going to, go back to him next week in Deuteronomy. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's the past. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. You think the pleasures and the past and, and the priorities of this world are any worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us that begins now? They're not even worthy to be compared to it. That's his point. We are not coming. We have come to Jesus. And that's what he says. We're there. The joy of the pleasures of Christ right here make the pleasures of this world seem like nothing. The priority and plan of a people gathered around the throne of Christ brings so much more joy than the priorities of this world. The future hope of the finish line of the new heavens and the new earth make the backward glances to the past unthinkable. This is the message of the book of Hebrews. And that's why he writes in the same chapter, for you have not come, brothers and sisters, we're done with this. We have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. We have not come to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. We have not come there, but we have come to Jesus but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the, and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We've come to Jesus. We're all in. We're all in. Let's go together. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, we admit this passage and your words were hard to understand and hard to hear. But we receive them from the King of kings and the Lord of lords who wants to be clear with us, who wants to remind us and stir us up to make a decision that the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace, to wake us up as believers, to help us press on to the upward call of Christ. And it makes sense, Lord, of Paul's words to press on to that upward call and to not look back 
Forsaking, looking behind, we press on to the upward call of God in Christ. So, Lord, this is, this is your heart for us in this passage. We needed to hear this. Minister to the hearts of my dear brothers and sisters. Minister to my heart, to my family's heart through this message. And may we just reassess our priorities, reassess our pleasures and our fixations on the past that we would press on to the upward call of God in Christ. And we recognize it's hard. There's nowhere to lay your head. We recognize that. We recognize the difficulty our brothers and sisters in Vienna face. Many alarming threats happening even in that country. We recognize the pushback in our church plant in Vienna right now. We pray for Kai and Matthew and the deacons and the church members that they would unite around Jesus, that you would comfort them and help them. We pray for Alex as well as he is planting a church in Austria for our dear brothers and sisters in Sierra Leone. Pray for them today, Lord, that you would strengthen their weary hands. We give you praise for Beth's father and the answered prayer there and how he's recovering so well after such a difficult and dangerous surgery. We're grateful. We're grateful. Lord, our missionaries are suffering and there's things that are happening. I, I pray, Lord, that you would rescue and that you would comfort in all of those things. We do pray for Emily Jacobson's father as well who is sick, would you draw him to yourself? Lord, we love you. We need to go together. We need your grace to, to put this word into practice, to not just be hearers of it, but be doers of it. We ask that you would do that in our midst this week, that this would not leave us, that this would be resonating in our minds and hearts for our whole lives as Christians. The words of Christ from the end of Luke chapter 9. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.